0: The LRB podcast is sponsored by Art and Ideas, a podcast series featuring J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in conversation with artists, writers, curators and scholars. In the latest episode, Ankar Mulstein, author of The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th Century French Novels, discusses the symbiotic relationship between authors and artists in 19th century France. Search Getty Art and Ideas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or other podcast sources.
1: Hello and welcome to another London Review of Books podcast. Uh, I'm Tom Crew. Uh, I'm joined today by William Davis, who's a reader in political economy at Goldsmiths, University of London. We're here to talk today about Will's piece about Corbyn, called Reasons for Corbyn. Uh, it was published two issues ago which takes as its subject the influence of the internet on uh, modern politics. And I think what's useful about Will's piece is that it actually allows us to explore a series of um, issues and themes that have been brought up in the LRB over the last year or so as we as a sort of paper try to get to grips with our current moment. My latest contribution to this is a piece in the new issue of the LRB about uh, politics and the press uh, and the possibility of a post-press politics. So we'll be talking about that as well. Uh, But I think we'll just start by talking about Will's first essay for the LRB, which was about Theresa May. It was a rather chilling piece about the sort of home office mentality and the way in which Brexit could enable a politics which discriminated between different sorts of people and different sorts of economic sectors. Um, Maybe you could just, you know, you can say better than I what that involved and, and how far I think... We've come since then. I mean, does it does it does it stand up? Does it? Sure. Uh, this article was written
2: shortly after the speech that she gave at Conservative Party conference in October 2016, and I was commenting really on the fact that she was bringing to Downing Street a, a set of principles, techniques of policy, an approach to power. That had long listed actually it 's long existed in the home office, uh, and obviously she 'd been home secretary for several years before becoming prime minister, and the Home Office is quite an interesting. Uh, corner of Whitehall and has tended to be a rather embattled corner of Whitehall because while the Treasury and the Department of Business Innovation and Skills and so on have tended to celebrate free markets and openness and trade, and um, which includes uh, high levels of immigration and so on, and that's the model of growth and uh, an approach to uh, economic policy that has dominated in Britain since uh, Margaret Thatcher's time. Meanwhile, the Home Office has tended to be the part of the government that Is more concerned with protecting people from whether it be uh, crime or from um, various security threats uh, that tries to keep people out of the country. That in some ways represents the more fearful aspects of of voter psychology, and uh, in some ways has a certain kind of uh, sympathetic audience in the uh, conservative tabloids. Um, And in a way, what I was um, observing, or the, the starting point for the piece, was that Theresa May. Seem to um, embody aspects of that Home Office psychology and of that that politics in that she was, you know, her her opening speech when she stood in Downing Street back in July of last year was that I am going to stand up for the for the powerless. I'm going to uh, be the, the 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 a leader that is there to. Protect you from the various crosswinds of um, of globalization, of uh, and of capitalism to to a great extent. I mean, she was identified as a as a leader that would be that would move the conservatives quite strongly to the left on economic policy. Um, and so, what I was arguing in the piece was that she she was at least on a rhetorical level was speaking as if she would she would act in a protective way, both in in relation to social issues and to questions of uh, uh, and and cultural issues so quite a sort of nationalist agenda but would also try and um, uh, introduce a more protectionist approach to economic policy which of course Brexit makes both um,
1: inevitable in some ways but also uh, more possible. Mm. I think the problem is that or the striking thing is that that was very much the sort of politics she took into the election I think. Certainly when I was recently rereading the sort of responses to that manifesto. I mean it was the observer said she was an astonishing set of principles. Uh watershed moment at British politics and lots of other commentators took a similar line. So it's it's not that she abandoned the project, it seems that the voters rejected it, which seems still surprising, I suppose.
2: Yes, and I mean, I was I was one of many people who um, wrote some rather ill fated lines about Theresa May's um, glorious future that lay ahead of her. And in that piece back in October of last year, I, I wrote that she might be in the process of constructing a, a project with even greater durability than Margaret Thatcher's. Um, that, that that so it had about another sort of six months of of her Germany left after after I wrote that. So it did look as if there was something which was being assembled with quite a lot of durability um, because she was making a very firm pitch to um, Labour voters. There was a whole narrative around the election of this year that the the, the what was going to be so devastating for Labour was that, um, I think as Stephen Bush in The New Statesman wrote, that maybe voting UKIP was a kind of entry-level drug for voting Conservative. So there were various parts of the country that particularly in South Wales and elsewhere and uh, in these kind of heavily uh, um, leave-oriented, leave-voting areas such as the North East and so on, which had um, uh, started to move away from Labour towards UKIP, had voted heavily in favour of leave in uh, June 2016, um, and that now they were had their sort of ears open to a potential um, appeal from the Conservative Party, if only the right kind of noises were being made about looking after you, for you and your family. We we are still, you know, we care about the NHS, we care about jobs, we care about the family and so on. And this was what a, a general set of cultural economic concerns that had been summed up as as Red Tory um, for a while, or as Blue Labour, um, that there was a kind of overlap between tradi- what were traditionally seen as left-wing economic policies with what had traditionally been seen as conservative social policies. And that some kind of, if you could pull these two things together, you could have a devastating uh, electoral proposition. And it looked as if Theresa May had was at least, you know, on a rhetorical level, I don't think she ever quite delivered uh, she never made it clear what the policies would be that would bring this to life, but at least on an ideological and rhetorical level, particularly influenced by her advisor, Nick Timothy, who was the pretty much the first casualty on June ninth after the election. Um, but he was the the sort of one of the intellectual architects of this of this vision of a version of conservatism that would be pitched directly at, at working class and and struggling lower middle class voters. And I think on on a rhetorical and, and symbolic level, I think it I think it it, it made a lot of sense. But for various reasons, it, it started to fall apart, and I think one of the reasons it started to fall apart was that it didn't. It never was never clear what how it would cash out in policy terms, in terms of actually making a difference to anyone's lives, other than to say that. I mean, people will always believe that the Conservative Party are going to be tougher on immigration than the Labour Party, and of course, people do care about immigration. But what positive difference is it going to make to anyone's life? That that I don't think it was ever made clear. I mean, maybe she called the election six months too early. Maybe she needed another, she needed longer to start to actually develop a manifesto because obviously the Conservative manifesto was one of the most woeful policy documents in living memory. I mean, it just didn't have anything in it. Not only not did not have any numbers in it, it didn't really have any policies in it. It was just a set of of gestures and and, and slogans really. And um, quite who who was responsible for that, I'm not quite sure whether it was um, uh, her advisors um, or Linton Crosby or, or whoever it might have been.
1: No, I, I completely agree that I think that I think May's error wasn't, to some extent, was to stray so far into sort of Corbyn territory, and yet offer such a weak policy option um, that she'd gone so far as to identify a range of similar problems. Agree, actually, to to an extent with his analysis, and yet then allowed herself to be outbid on what she was offering. Um, and I suppose what I was going to say is, um, I think we absolutely, I think. It was a brilliant essay, by the way, and still worth reading. Um, but what you certainly got right was the the dynamics, I think, of the moment, because probably what was less easy to see at the time was that Corbyn was almost uh, as well-placed to tap into that um, moment as May was. And in fact, maybe, I think this was something I was going to ask you about anyway, is the extent to which Corbyn's politics could sort of fit alongside an idea of the protective state. I mean, you make a distinction between a protective state which discriminates and a care-oriented state uh, which sort of recognises uh, the population individually as, as humans deserving of uh, particular standards of living. Um, but there's, a, I suppose, a way of seeing a Corbynite economics which is protectionist or is prepared to pick out sectors or um, it's certainly prepared to abandon the sort of free markets aspects of the EU that would hold back the sort of state aid rules and so forth?
2: Yes, I think Corbyn was able to inject hope into a similar agenda in a way, Um, in a way that mayism, whatever else it might have been, it's never been hopeful. It's never had any reason to believe that the future will be any any better than the, the present. It, 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 at its at its strongest, it might be able to convince people that it will be as good as the present, or you know, even a more kind of sort of uh, fantastical sense, perhaps as good as aspects of the past. You know, some aspect of the nineteen fifties or something like that. But it's never. No point has Theresa May ever really convinced anybody that um, that after five years of a May government, things are going to be better than they are now. And that's partly because there are obviously various um, aspects of the reality Britain faces, including Brexit, including its uh, uh, precarious economic position um, and, and, and so on, that, that mean that maybe – you know she doesn't believe that it will be better in five years' time. I think in some ways there's a kind of um th- th- there's a sort of brute realism perhaps that that maybe she she and some of her advisors suffered from, which is they really felt they had very little room for maneuver to actually say anything very hopeful whereas in a way, I think what corbyn um was able to do by virtue of of being the the, the figure he is um, and clearly believing the things he believes was to in a sense sort of throw caution to the wind and say um, you know we we, we can spend more money, we can tax, we can raise more money from taxation, we can increase capital gains tax, Uh, we can raise income tax for the top earners and so on and we can spend it on increasing the pay of nurses and teachers and this sort of thing I mean it's kind of, there's something kind of um, beautifully simple about it in a way and it's been uh, kind of a, a, a a relatively obvious feature of social democracy um, for, for for sort of 60 years um, it's just that people had forgotten this quite um, it's it, it was kind of dismissed as, as naive by uh, by uh, under blairism and so on and, and and not economically credible and 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 not democratically credible and so on but I think that um, what I mean Corbyn may have tapped in some similar sentiments, but I think he realized as well whether he realized it or not that it became clear that that there was that there was a yearning for for something just a bit different um in a way of a sort that that theresa may was only ever offering to um, pull up the pull up the, um, the 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 barricades in some way to to protect us from from Brexit, to um, reduce immigration, to protect us from Jeremy Corbyn. That was the most ridiculous uh, aspect of the whole election. Was that she called it and then spent the entire campaign saying, "I'm the only thing that can stop Jeremy Corbyn." It's like, well, if that was your biggest priority, you shouldn't have called the election. I mean, this is the the absurdity of of that whole campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, was that she was purely trying to act as this kind of uh, leviathan? and like a uh, 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 protector um, who was going to stand up for British interests, But she was the one who had, who had caused the destabilization of the election in the first place. Meanwhile, she never came across as a particularly, well, in her words, strong or stable figure. I mean, she, she often seemed rather fragile when it, when it came to media appearances. She never seemed like a natural media operator. Um, and I think that that was, these were some of the aspects of of, of that campaign that, that did so badly for the Conservatives. Mm.
1: Meanwhile, and you know, in another five years, a lot can change, and also you know another cohort of young voters coming in, which begs the question: you know, what are the underlying dynamics that all the, all the while are changing our politics? If the Brexit's the big structural issue, there's also a whole set of changes to do with the internet and the way people experience politics, which is something your your second essay that we'll talk about today um, comes in, this essay called Reasons for Corbyn, where you sort of talk about the way the internet has acted as, as an archive and by rendering visible people's pasts, individual politicians' pasts, it's sort of elevated a new, a new type of authenticity as a, as a driving force in politics. Um, yes, right? that, uh,
2: it's, it's a really an analysis of, of the new type of leadership Qualities that um, seem to thrive in this digital um, networked media environment. And one of the things that I argue in that piece is that the bottlenecks through which we used to encounter public figures and politicians no longer really exist. I mean, the bottlenecks used to be um, that newspapers were published um, once a day, and you could buy them from a shop. And it used to be that um, politicians encountered the press via their press conferences or via the House of Commons and so on. And you'd watch the six o'clock news to find out what had happened that day and so on. And all of those kind of bottlenecks have basically been eradicated. And it's not just the bottlenecks of how we actually uh, are able to encounter news and, and news content. It's also the bottlenecks of professional journalism and, and punditry and so on. And, of course, the one of the first responses of the uh, – one of the first um, – part of the fallout from the June 8th election was immediately to start throwing a lot of questions towards our, our – our our pundits and our and journalists, um, because which was sort of strange in a way. Because of course, I mean, it was it was it was odd how how much it it was thrown back as being a crisis for for the media as much as anything else. I mean, it really should have. I mean, it was a crisis for the Conservative Party as much, you know, first and foremost. But one of the things that it really did provoke, I think, in in, in British public life, was a discussion about well, do journalists know anything anymore, and um, why do we even have pundits if they if they their, uh, if their sort of lack of curiosity and their their sort of lack of uh, magnanimity is means that they they fail to spot something that is going on. And is there another way of spotting it that might actually be preferable and perhaps has nothing to do with with with, with newspapers at all? Perhaps. I mean, could it be that um, uh, you know that? I mean, of course, there's there are questions about whether. Um, uh, It's data analytics nowadays. I mean, there's people's people's views and feelings and so on are being collected in all sorts of new ways, which don't require the mediation of journalists and newspapers and so on. Um, But I think that one of the we are at a moment right now where it's really not clear what the what the status of of, of newspapers and pundits and editors is in public life, whether they are to to reflect something, whether they are to try and influence something, whether they are there to try and know something, because they don't seem to have necessarily done a very good job of any of those things over the over, over the last uh, couple of years. Um, and so that really raised the question of whether something else might come along instead. And I think that, I mean, the fact that, that, that Corbyn uh, was able to uh, do as well as he did without anybody appearing to know, other than you, Gov, um, for various <laughs> curious methodological reasons. Um, and of course, many of his, some of his, really kind of passionate supporters kind of felt that something was going on. But of course, their, you know, their evidence for that was normally like a photograph of a of a town hall meeting in a particular um, neighborhood on a on a rainy Thursday evening. I mean, it doesn't necessarily tell you very. Much. I mean, it tells you something about the passions people feel, but it doesn't tell you something about anything much about how widely those passions are felt. Um, so I think that the there is, it is an interesting moment in terms of that sort of crisis of 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 a of a of a set of media institutions and elites that um that have had kind of ups and downs before i mean it's a bit like the 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 what happened with the economics profession or then perhaps not enough happened with that after the financial crisis where uh, everyone wanted to know well wasn't it your job to see this kind of thing happening coming um and i think that that's been in many ways the one of the more significant fallouts from from June the 8th is 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 the questions it's raised
1: for the media. Mm. I think we've become very anxious about post-truth and Brexit seemed to vindicate this idea of uh, a post-truth moment where you know the 350 million figure can get bandied around for the NHS and everyone knows it's not true but it doesn't seem to make any difference and I think we felt anxious after Brexit because Brexit was a tabloid policy that had been you know the ground had been Prepared for for a long time, so it seemed, uh, and it seemed to vindicate a lot of things people feel, uh, perhaps not entirely consciously, which is that you know people who read the tabloids believe what they read there, uh, and I think there's a lot to do with uh, class in how in that response, that willingness to ascribe naivety uh, or a lack of uh, discrimination to people who read the Sun or the Mail, um, but I think what's actually been proved since the election is that we were all living in a post-truth moment. That The tabloids had no objectivity but neither really did the Guardian or the Observer and really we need to be much more relaxed about embracing uh, a new politics where the information that is available to people is segmented and comes from different sources and can be subjective and partisan in, in a way that we've been told uh, the news can't be and that we should be much more optimistic about the way that Enables a politics which is no longer structured around the press and what is, has become a very unhealthy relationship, I think, between uh, the Westminster elite and, and Fleet Street, and that we should be, uh, you know, cautiously optimistic about a politics which can no longer be defined by the nature of that relationship, which is, I think, what you were, what you were being cautiously optimistic about as well. Yes, I, I think
2: that the cynicism toward we, I mean, we, we, I think everyone's realised that we live in a kind of age of cynicism towards politics. Uh, this has been something that has has become a sort of truism over over decades, really. But I think people perhaps underestimated how cynical people were towards newspapers. I mean, it's actually, if you look at the surveys on trust, uh, which are things that that get uh, studied quite a lot, um, that politicians and journalists are right up there with uh, estate agents and and another of the less trusted uh, uh, professions and so i think i think that there's been a lot of cynicism towards the the press for some time and i think people have often underestimated that because they've always assumed that if there's anything rotten in public life, it probably stems from from our political classes and forgetting that actually people are just as, as sick of, of, you know, the, particularly around the hacking scandal and so on. I mean, disgusting behavior of, of causing people harm in an effort to try and create sensationalist news. Um, and I think that pe- people, I mean, one of the things, as, as you argue in your piece, that people, particularly those who ha- have, have, Liberal left sympathies have tended to look at the tabloid media as being this kind of all powerful monster that can basically uh, control um, <laughs> sort of mass movements and and, and, and political sympathies and voting habits and so on, which of course the sun has has always wanted to kind of give off that impression, particularly with its famous thousand nine hundred and ninety two headline of the Sun What won it. Um, But I think that perhaps we've we've overestimated the power of these of these institutions and underestimated how sick of them many people are. And I think that that was I think the other thing which I thought which, you know, which your your piece introduces in the question of what will what what are the alternatives because people can't live in a sort of entirely sort of newsless world. I mean, um, they can't, people people need to have some means of trying to understand what's going on in their society and in their lives and so on. Um, and I thought what was quite interesting was the possibility that that you explore of there being some other types of gatekeepers. We might not necessarily see them as gatekeepers because they don't have a big kind of, you know, they don't, they're not professional necessarily. They're not necessarily paid. They don't have this kind of institutional quality of the sort that, that Fleet Street had. But I thought that was Quite interesting to think about how that might play out and how it may have have played out in the in the twenty seventeen
1: election. Yeah, this is these people who you know. There's this chap called Thomas Clark in Yorkshire. He's a blogger. Uh, he has a page on Facebook called Another Angry Voice. I mean, you probably, I think, I saw his stuff during the election without really realizing where it was coming from. Um, and he's sort of churning out these pro Corbyn, you know, well sourced articles, but pro Corbyn articles. One one alone went. Viral to the extent that it was read as many times uh, as the Sun was on any given day, and in general, his articles received millions of reads. But there's also one of the other interesting things is how many just members of the public, you know, would just put together a meme uh, of an evening, and it would, you know, be shared, you know, twenty six thousand times or whatever, and it would reach two point nine million people. I mean, that's what the internet. Has enabled is a, is a new system of publicity, new system of mass communication, which sort of until now really the press had a monopoly on. I mean, the press and democracy went uh, sort of developed together in the sense that you know in the late nineteenth century it became clear to politicians that mass democracy could only work if you had a system of publicity that allowed the public and uh, their governors to sort of see each other and interact, if even only virtually. And it's only now that we can see that the internet actually is finally created a sort of rival ecosystem which provides those conditions of publicity which still allow democracy to function but offer an alternative power structure, a much more democratic one.
2: And I think the other interesting thing about that is that it it clearly has a capacity to mobilise in a sense that political scientists, particularly of a, of, a, of a more quantitative persuasion um, more interested in, in in sort of the the, the kind of economics of, of voting behavior and the sort of individual rationality of voting behavior have, have often sort of you know treated democracy as, as a set as a, as a big kind of set of collective action problems which is well I might want communism or something else but I don't think anybody else does so i'm I'm, I'm going to carry on voting labor because I'll do what I think collectively is possible um, and that becomes quite narrowed by looking at things like um, polling data by listening to the objective political reports from the BBC or CNN and so on. So in a sense, this these, these traditional um, liberal media, in a way, have a kind of dampening effect on what otherwise might be quite sort of niche political views. But of course, one of the things that these uh, other media um, outlets can do, the, the ones that you're talking about, is that they can generate bubbles and, and bubbles are, are generally seen as sort of negative things. I mean, you don't want to live in a media bubble where all you ever hear is, is views that reinforce your own. But of course, bubbles are also have a kind of mobilizing power and they are good ways of overcoming collective action problems, which is that you can – if I, if I look around me on Facebook and everybody believes that we can – you know, renationalise the banks, or we can, um, you know, re- resurrect the British Empire, or whatever it might be. It is that it becomes possible to actually? You could say that these things are not realistic in their in their origins, but they can become realistic because they have a kind of mobilising effect. They can they can they can generate their own um, uh, realism in a sense. They can become more plausible in a way that they're not plausible when you live in a world purely of of looking at the opinion polls and what the Broad policy um, menu is across the UK at large, but they have the capacity to to, to create enthusiasm and to create excitement and to uh, and to overcome their what is their initially their lack of plausibility. And I think there's something about that. That's not to say that that Corbynism is 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 based on implausible policies. I think in a sense the the what was brilliant I think about the the Labour campaign of, of over the course of April, May, June of this year was that when they kind of unveiled the, the manifesto, and it turned out that the manifesto contained some quite carefully worked out, quite plausible, reasonably sensible, but nevertheless quite hopeful policies, and clearly a lot of work had gone into it. I think that that actually was a kind of key moment where actually a lot of this, um, the, these sort of bubbles of enthusiasm had the capacity to actually turn into something more than than that. But I do think that given that corbyn managed to survive for for two years under fire almost two years under fire as seen as an utterly implausible leader and basically people had sort of dismissed him completely out of hand which is obviously what the the kind of pundit class had done i think that those those pockets and those bubbles of of you know, you could say they're self-reinforcing and you could say what you like about them. There's lots of it's easy to be critical of them, but they have a political potential, which I think needs to be taken seriously, because after all, democracy is in some ways not about being realistic. Democracy is about mobilization. And actually, um, often too many facts and too much hard evidence is, is it only dampens the, the sentiments that, that lead people to get involved in, in political campaigns.
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, question about about policy, because, Mm. you know, the Corbyn campaign, it was fairly straightforward, social democratic uh, ambitions, you know, the sort of thing, yes, you know, in the sort of 30 year context, maybe striking departures, but, but generally still quite sort of small C conservative Mm. in their ambitions. But what you're saying here is that that sort of big, far reaching, dramatic reform, sort of big, big policy ideas can now start not only just be built up in these sort of bubbles, but Mm. can then sort of, Possibly achieve uh, a takeoff.
2: Yes, I mean the, the the point I was making in the piece was that um, the Labour manifesto was was clearly crucial. I mean the Labour. I mean the, the the Corbyn surge from kind of roughly. Ran about twenty-seven percent in the polls, up to where he ended up, which was just over forty percent in the actual result. um, Happened pretty soon after the unveiling of the of the manifesto, and and all sorts of extraordinary things started to change. I mean, the you know the South Wales, where which had been one of the most depressing stories for for Labour supporters, was watching that the polls were showing that that Labour was going to lose South Wales, which is the the, the absolute heartland and 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 where the origins of of, of the Labour Party lie. Um, and um, the manifesto was what started to sort of turn things around. And I think that I think what was interesting, if I was a, a political strategist or a campaigner thinking about the lessons from this campaign in future, is that you need to have some hopeful um, policies that work on a symbolic level, as well as on a technical level. I mean, Corbyn was unveiling policies of of a sort that were easy to comprehend. They were not that easy to pull apart. They weren't that easy to misrepresent. They were things... I mean, a lot of them were just basic fiscal aspects of social democracy, such as putting up capital gains tax to pay for um, free tuition and this sort of thing. But, you know, no tax rises for 95% of earners and this sort of thing. And I think that this can operate in a sort of viral fashion. I mean, it's a completely different style of campaigning as to what New Labour uh, were um, both very good at, but also rather kind of disliked for by the end, which was this rather paranoid attempt to try and control every piece of message. Whereas Corbynism, partly... By virtue of the fact that it's, it's just, I mean, Corbyn isn't even in control, really, of, of or what at the time wasn't really in control of the Parliamentary Labour Party, let alone in control of the media. So in a way, it had to operate in, as more of a sort of guerrilla movement mm. of uh, unleashing policies of trusting that it that the supporters were going to have to do a lot of a lot of legwork. And I think momentum did do a lot of very important work for for Corbyn. But it's a it's a, in some ways it's more of a, a of a viral movement, more of a decentralised phenomenon. Um, And it's actually very difficult to campaign against, because uh, if you're still using traditional campaigning techniques of trying to send out uh, rigidly controlled messages in a uh, in in a very sort of linear kind of monologue of the sort that that Theresa May was doing, if you're if in response, you're getting this kind of uh, sort of more kind of guerrilla warfare style, uh, decentralized messaging where you've got policies that can zip around um, and be um, you know, receive a lot of enthusiasm because ultimately they, you know, they they, they were positive policies. I think that it's a different way of, of conducting campaign. Now, where, how you then use any of those sorts of um, uh, tactics once you're in power is a whole, whole, is a rather different question. And I think that's, you know, remains um, one of the big problems for, 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 for politicians and for governments around the world. Mm-hmm.
1: I think actually it confirms something, the sort of Corbyn effect confirms something that I've thought for a while and argued in my previous life as an academic which is that celebrity or the sort of apparatus of celebrity the mechanisms of celebrity can be sort of profoundly pro-democratic in their effects we tend to think of or when people dismiss Corbyn and dismiss the sort of hysteria or excitement he generates people tend to say oh it's a personality cult or you know it's a load of gullible students or it's a you know it's somehow antithetical to British traditions but really that sort of uh connection that sort of imagined relationship between a public figure and uh, an ordinary member of the public can be can be actually a really effective way of mobilizing uh, democratic activity uh, and engaging people in politics and that actually grounding things in the personal is a really useful way of uh, mobilizing people again this is something that the new media the internet twitter facebook uh enables more than more than previously this this sense of a direct connection and it, in fact, it is much more of a direct connection than it ever was before. And part of the problem, I think, previously is that some of those tactics and tools that were very effective 100 years ago in terms of building this sort of relationship between uh, governors and governed, uh, politicians and the electorate, the speech, the photo call, the portrait, things that seemed initially sort of liberating and exciting in their effects in terms of generating a new sort of democratic politics, uh, gradually sort of, calcified and uh, became, you know, clearly exploitative. And I I think that sort of probably reached its peak in the new Labour years, which is probably now where we're finally seeing this sort of uh, reaction against it. And what Twitter and Facebook uh, provide is is a new way of doing that sort of politics, which actually is much less open to control. Uh, You know, Alistair Campbell couldn't couldn't do quite Mm. the same thing with this set of tools as he could with the old ones. And it feels... Much more plausible as a as a sort of form of interaction and a connection.
2: Mm. I suppose. I mean, the lot. The, the, so I one of the questions that comes comes out of this is, what does this mean for the for the future of political leadership? Because one, I mean, one of the things I I pointed out in in, in my piece on Corbyn was how um, just the. I suppose it's interesting how Trump, Sanders, and Corbyn just. The, it's a kind of banal point in a way, but how how old they all are by yeah. by the standards of uh, of recent uh, political leaders, um, where the the, the standards. Um, third way politician in the 1990s was a man in his early 30s, early 40s. And, um, you know, Macron is 39. So he kind of fits the the type um, quite, quite closely. And and it was sort of assumed after Blair that you had to have these kind of, you know, Cameron or David Miliband or Ed Miliband or Nick Clegg or one of these kind of figures. And they all sort of began to blur into one after a while, which is part of the problem. Um, but now there's a kind of, um, you, you know, so the, the Sanders, Trump, Corbyn phenomenon, Um, of these men um, around the age of 70. And I suggest in the piece that... It's there. They have these. The, the, you know, they have these long biographies of being just on the edge of public life. I mean, they're sort of people who have been known about, and it's possible to go and research if you wanted to. I as mean, was research. You don't have to kind of like type into Google or Google Image Search or whatever, but find out. Um, you know, who they are, what they stand for, and and um, uh, I use the example of the fact that both Corbyn and Sanders have a have a have a widely circulated photograph of themselves being dragged away. Uh, by police, from uh, in Corbyn's case, it was an anti-apartheid protest in the early '80s, and in Sanders's case, it was a civil rights march in the early 1960s. And this, in a way, you know, they were on the right side of history. This, this is, this is kind of what gives them a kind of moral authority. Um, and so, uh, this is, I think, there's something. I know mean, Trump is a completely different kind of <laughs> kettle of fish, but, uh, but again, I mean, people have. Known who Donald Trump is in American um, society uh, for, for for twenty thirty years or so. I mean, he's he's a, he's been a, you know rather laughed at by uh, people um, who are not likely to vote Republican. Um, but he's embodied something that people uh, that his that his supporters would have would have respected throughout that time. So they have the they have a good archive behind them in that sense, as as, as my piece is arguing. I think one of the one of the questions though is what what does this mean in the future? Because what would so, say Clive Lewis became the next leader of the Labour Party, for instance, or uh, or if uh, you know people are saying, I mean, Jacob rees moggs probably a, uh, probably a, still a joke, but uh, there, there has been this talk of Jacob Rees-Mogg becoming yeah. the next leader of the Conservative Party. Momentum, momentum, um, uh, ready for Rees-Mogg, as the as the as the website uh, has it. But uh, people are saying, you know, the next leader of the Tory Party will be someone who we haven't even heard of yet. This is the this is the claim. Um, how will they? You know, maintain that sort of uh, leadership quality in the face of of this kind of constantly swirling. I mean, is it possible to just stand back and not try and control the news agenda? Well, not completely, if you're prime minister. Uh, but I think that one thing that, that that leaders will have to try and do, if they are to sort of uh, if they're to survive in this environment, is to to treat, I suppose, the press a bit like the way someone would treat a troll on, on the internet which is to not there's an expression which is don't feed the troll mm. uh so if you're if someone's on twitter and they're sort of trying to misrepresent you and attack you and and and, and make jokes at you and so on the the phrase don't feed the troll means you basically have to ignore them because otherwise you're just simply giving more attention to the to them and to the arguments they're making. Um, and that we live in an attention economy, and actually just ignoring one's critics is the is the best way of of, of waiting for the criticism to subside, which is a complete anathema to to the sort of Blairite um, kind of news cycle obsessed media management mentality, which is that well, what are we going to say at two p.m. and has it worked by three p.m. and you know this constant sort of uh, react, react, react. Sort of mentality.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the thing about, you know, plurality in the media that wasn't there before is exactly that it allows someone like Corbyn to sort of, in a way, take a step back and you let other people do the work for you. A lot of the work that someone like Tony Blair had to do to stay in the media, to do all those interviews, to make the speeches, to appear in front of the cameras, Corbyn doesn't have to do in quite the same way anymore because he can rely on this sort of digital army of people Mm. circulating images of him, quotes, videos, so he can sort of ration his appearances, and allow other people to to pick up the slack, as it were. And because he doesn't, the media doesn't have the tabloid Fleet Street media doesn't have that stranglehold, that bottleneck, as you put it, any longer. You can afford, as he did, to ignore you know everyone apart from the Daily Mirror, which you probably don't even you know. It's nice to give them a column every now and again, but you know even they're not crucial. And actually, you can. You can let other people do the work in other parts of the of the sort of digital ecosystem, and so, that there's a freedom there, isn't there?
2: Uh, what I was going to ask was. So, I mean, if if there were a a future over the next couple of years where the Brexit talks uh, run into all sorts of problems, where, as everyone's predicting will happen, the DUP uh, are no longer prepared to prop up Theresa May's government and um, the various alternatives to Theresa May's leader can't manage to um, work things out between themselves. And you get a general election, which I think there are still a lot of people who think it will happen in the autumn. And let's say, let's say, after all of this happens, we have Jeremy Corbyn as the next prime minister. Mm. Does any of the kind of media support or media uh, landscape that you're describing in your piece does? How does any of that work once the figure who is uh, the, the the sort of uh, centerpiece of, of of a lot of that enthusiasm is is the prime minister getting yeah. their hands dirty with difficult? Problems. I mean, the only real, to use the examples we've used so far, the only precedent we have for that is the rather unfortunate one of Donald Trump, whose presidency is 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 going absolutely nowhere at the moment, and um, his ratings are are, are are very very bad. Um, but I assume that, I mean, things like the the Canary and some of the other uh, alternative media outlets that are sympathetic to Corbyn would still be around once he was in Downing Street and once John McDonnell was in the Treasury, and and, and there would be a huge amount of resistance to that from within the state and a huge amount of resistance. to that from the the Murdoch press does any of that stuff (laughs) I mean will that stuff come to their aid do you think
1: yeah I don't well exactly I mean I just was just referring to his freedom and that's exactly what Mm. he would lose as as a political figure as a political leader I suppose first of all we hope he's good at politics or we at least we you know if someone like me who's sort of cautiously optimistic about the new media age I still don't for a moment think that you, you you don't no longer need to be good at politics and so you'd still hope that there's the level of political skill there and sophistication of political thinking that would allow there to be a fairly successful operation run from downing street both on a policy level in terms of the sort of practicalities of of doing politics but also that you that you would have to obviously have a, have a sensible way of dealing with the media that exists so that, yeah it wouldn't be that you you know you but you put out what you want to put out and you try not to sort of slavishly follow the tabloid agenda in the way that the Blair government was guilty of doing too often
0: yeah
1: and also that you think that maybe this other sort of media the new media is re, you know is maybe reaching a degree of maturity or you know i think actually you've seen you know we've seen that sort of media uh, develop very quickly in the last few years when you think about some of the platforms that exist now that didn't 5 years ago and that actually that would be a growing part of politics, a, a more powerful mm. dimension to politics than it is now, and that it could be an alternative power base, that it mm. it could offer support uh, that wasn't available in the mainstream media, and that and those messages could reach, you know, huge numbers of people, more more people than the press could reach, and that, that the same dynamics that were at work in the election... Uh, in terms of allowing Corbyn to rehabilitate his image and spread uh, the message of the manifesto, those same dynamics, providing everything was going okay in 10 Downing Street, providing there are things to be proud of or Mm. pleased about, that those same dynamics could spread a positive message and counteract uh, whatever was being said by the Murdoch press. Mm. I don't know how plausible that is, but that would presumably be... Does that strike you as sensible?
2: No, I mean, I um, I think there is the... I mean, this is the the big question. I mean, is, are are these alternative platforms and and news outlets are they are they um, uh, just insurgents or can they be,
1: be the institutions? Yeah. Yes,
2: and can they can they support the kind of public realm that people have um, tried to defend since the eighteenth century? Um, or are they just there to try and disrupt that public realm and to try and carve it up into little pieces? Clearly, that what what's called the alt right is 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 only interested in the latter, really, because they view the very idea of the public realm as a as a kind of liberal conspiracy that that benefits certain um, professional um, classes and and so on. Um, I think that I suppose the, the 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 Blairite a lot of the Blairite animosity towards the media derived from the fact that. They didn't feel that their successes were ever adequately communicated, and they a lot of a lot of Blairites, a lot of the people who worked around Blair were um, policy wonks, basically. And they had, I mean, a lot, a lot of a lot of them um, viewed the world in quite an economics,
1: economistic, quite statistical kind of way, which is why that generation of politicians was so unsatisfactory. I think you know the Millibands and the Purnells and the Burnhams yeah. and yeah. You know, um, but they
2: also they also feel that they you know that the in terms of the effect of of the Blair government on child poverty uh, the the fall of inequality during the second term the huge amounts of money put into the NHS um, the redistribution of tax credits and so on they just feel utterly kind of unfairly represented um, yeah. but I suppose part of the problem was that I mean something like tax credits gets to the heart of what was what 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 didn't work as a media strategy from from the New Labour's new media strategy, which is that tax credits are so complicated. Even the people who receive them barely understand how they work, and often they don't even know they've received them yeah. because it all happened via the the pay packet and so on. Uh, so they completely pay. They completely. Um, Dropped the ball when it came to the symbolic aspect of politics and the the the, the, the elements of politics which are about the visible and the the, the, the mutually understood and the things that um, we can all see that something has happened here because for that you know they they looked at the world slightly through spreadsheets and then couldn't understand when um, these bloody journalists didn't then go and c- communicate these uh, wonderful uh, success stories and of course there were these figures um, like Polly Toynbee and others who who have sort of tried to kind of straddle the world of a kind of statistical discourse and a journalistic discourse of trying to act as the, to try and communicate some of those success stories, but ultimately, I mean, you can't expect journalists to 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 become statisticians and to become evidence-based policymakers. And I think that was how a lot of that relationship went went sour. I mean, apart from things like the financial crisis and so on. But um, and and I suppose the the I suppose the risk is with Corbynism is that. Uh, Is that it could end up making the opposite mistake in a way? Is that that, that it'll it could it could at least in the sort of space that you're describing play some very very clever symbolic cards. but what is going to happen uh, to the question of, of, of evidence-based policy of, of, of technocracy, basically, uh, in the future? Uh, of course, people don't like technocrats anymore. We don't want these experts and these elites to take all these decisions for us. We don't see what they know that, that we don't know, and so on. But ultimately, if 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 Corbyn were to to form a government, and for that government to actually achieve some social good, there will need to be, you know, the symbolic and the and the utilitarian will need to be kind of married to get together uh, once again. And I think that's that's one of the the I think that's one of the the anxieties I I still have about about some of that. Um, and I think that the the, the 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 more pessimistic take on that, the more I mean, you might even say paranoid take on that, is that in the media landscape that you're describing in your piece. Uh, if some of the worst fears of a sort of post-truth media were to, Were to come true, then speaking about the facts and the evidence, the statistics, and so on becomes just one perspective amongst many. That's the sort of you know how it. That's the fear of of that's the fear that animates, for instance, the New York Times right now or something like this. Is that you know in 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 America uh, that as soon as you say, well, actually, the facts of these and the stats say this, oh, oh, you're an East Coast liberal. You know that this is now just one. You're a centrist. This is now just one perspective amongst many. Um, And are we you know is there the risk of these some of these kind of online platforms you're talking about? and also the way in which we can get our, our news content filtered for us via facebook which is where most people read um online newspapers is via their facebook uh feed not via the the, the website itself um you know what, what is there to actually kind of prop up some idea of of, of the objective state of society and economy
1: yeah i do as I, I have two thoughts uh, immediately on that subject which is a that i think and this isn't what you're saying but i think when when people talk in those terms there's, there is often that sense that as as if we've sort of left the golden age behind when people didn't think that you know various bits of information were men, were were bits of information amongst many that they could pick and choose from and i think people have always chosen to believe what they want to believe and ignore certain things that counteract what what they already believe and that those people have already always existed people have never voted on purely rational grounds or uh, their party allegiance has never been purely rational it 's just part part of the way the internet 's changed our politics is that we can hear people much better, so we can hear ordinary people much better and it 's much easier for someone to pick up on someone they perceive as stupid or idiotic and then share that tweet and it goes round and you know and this and that sums up a trump supporter for mm. example and i I'm optimistic enough that you know lots of people uh you know don 't think like that or or that people are open to change their mind. And actually the internet allows people to, as much as it can can herd people into, into small uh, small groups, it also allows people to accidentally stumble into another group or f- stumble across a piece of information mm. they didn't see before. And that, that's possible too. Uh, but the second thing, just to respond to your point about uh, the sort of technocratic aspects of politics, is that if tax credits didn't find their spokesman, as it were, in the press before, maybe it's possible that, you know, in the new media, Twitter, blogosphere, if we still talk about the blogosphere, there are people who are interested in making that case. And that people who were, you know, were never, you know, in the headquarters of the Sun, but are sat somewhere else and actually can find a way of communicating tax credits in a positive, comprehensible way that the internet does actually enable those sorts of people to come to the fore mm. and that that sort of information can possibly feasibly circulate in ways that it couldn't in the past. Sure. And that maybe actually there is also uh, the possibility that it's not just symbolic policy that can work online, but also that sort of more technical stuff can be mm. seized by someone with a mission like our friend Thomas Clark in New Yorkshire someone who could actually find a way of popularising that information, the information people need to know. There are these interesting... Uh, blogging economists
2: and public intellectuals, uh, people like Chris Dillow, who uh, has a blog called stumblingandmumbling.com, which is a, a brilliant, um, uh, he, he, I mean, he's very, very regular blogger, but he's, he provides a, always a very thought provoking, um, uh, quite chatty analysis, uh, but with lots of links to uh, economic papers and and evidence that you could actually go and follow up on. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's quite a skill and not many people can do it. But I think it's interesting that, that there is now a, a different type of uh of way in which the uh different types of of, of punditry can emerge which potentially can be more loyal to a kind of uh, ideal of, 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 of expert objectivity rather than less actually because you know I, ultimately I'd rather listen to what Chris Dillo told me about what was going on in the economy than um, you know certainly than than, than Richard Littlejohn or, or some someone who uh, makes hundreds of thousands of pounds a year for saying incendiary things so I think that yes there's there's various different developments in this space and we need to I think what's helpful about your analysis is that
1: you you Focus on the the positive rather than the uh the explosively negative. <laughs> well, there you go. I do my best. Um I just thought we'd finish just maybe in one final question, which is one of the things that is interesting about what you've done in the LRB is that you've your two sort of interpretative essays. It's a it's a way of writing about politics that we is actually quite rare still. Um and it, and it's risky as as most writing on politics is. But it's. I wondered if you had any thoughts about what it is, what it's, what it's like uh, to write about politics in our in our current moment and the challenges and possibilities of doing that. Well,
2: my own background is sociology. I mean, I, my PhD is in sociology, um, and uh, I think that sociology is the sort of discipline that, when everything's going absolutely fine, um, people think, "Oh, it's just a bunch of." guys with beards and uh, sort of uh, using lots of abstract language. But I should when... point out that Will does have <laughs> and But actually, I think when it's when crises strike um, that uh, it becomes useful to be able to place um, events such as Brexit and the turbulence, the political turbulence of the last year, uh, but also the, the, the turbulence of the last decade of the financial crisis into a much uh, longer historical and and conceptual Sweep and to and to place it on a much larger canvas um and i think that i suppose that's i suppose all i try to do is to locate events in what to me are hopefully understandable um longer-term processes trends and so on um which in relation to my own writings one thing which people sometimes say to me about 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 pieces I've written is that they're reassuring, which I find kind of strange in a way, given they're generally sort of uh, d- discussing some quite kind of potentially quite depressing events sometimes. Um, but I think what, what that's alluding to is the fact that it is that it is that it locates what appears to be exceptional, unprecedented, contingent in... In a, in a history and in a context which demonstrates that it's actually none of... Well, it, is, it, can, it can be those things, but the, but not it's not beyond our comprehension. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, one of the problems with a lot of political writing, and this is what I think the pundits are, are guilty of in relation to the election, and a problem with a lot of our social science is that it's become more and more fixated on, on the personal and, and the local and the individual. So in social science, I mean, you think of things like... Um, you know the rise of behavioral economics and obsession with, with 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 neuroscience and the you know why do we take this decision not that decision and so on. And equally, pundits who think that pe- that politics begins and ends within Westminster. Um, I think that everything is about strategies between is Boris going to beat David Davis or is David Davis going to do this and yeah. um, and actually what I think people hopefully. Uh, are interested in right now i mean i hope my pieces are interesting but i hope that the to the extent that they are i think it's because i try to actually look at what's outside of that frame that is the has became a kind of has become a sort of dominant one um in an age of, of 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 celebrity and an obsession with the the, the intricacies and the mechanics of individual uh, uh Politics of, of of strategy and decision making and behaviour and so on and actually I think that's what what, what sociology and and in other traditions of cultural studies and so on can can bring if if when the moment strikes. Yeah,
1: and in fact that might be one of another sort of uh, unsuspected legacy of Corbyn that by creating that disjuncture by by sort of making a clear break with the sort of neoliberal consensus that actually he's opened up sort of discursive space around mm. politics that wasn't there before because if everything's if there's a level of consensus on how the economy works and how the economy should work then actually it's much easier just to talk about machinations at westminster because that is the big mm. change that is those are the sort of dynamic factors and by breaking with that you sort of relocate attention elsewhere and i think actually when you think about what does do the rounds on twitter in sort of leftist circles it is much now more now about structural questions uh, mm. about pay about housing about the economy than it is about personalities. And obviously, personalities is a useful way of communicating those messages, but it does feel like the spotlight has shifted to some of those bigger structural concerns. Um, So I think that's a good place to end. Thank you.
0: The LRB podcast is sponsored by Art and Ideas, a podcast series featuring J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in conversation with artists, writers, curators and scholars. In the latest episode, Ankar Mulstein, author of The Pen and the Brush, How Passion for Art Shaped 19th-Century French Novels, discusses the symbiotic relationship between authors and artists in 19th-century France. Search Getty Art and Ideas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play or other podcast sources.